So this is week number 25, which means this is broadcast number 25. And last week we turned the 14 and a half hour mark. And I'm going to say this, that you won't find many ministries such as ours that do a verse by verse Bible study. A lot of churches today are into the feel good factor. They're into uh, enjoying yourself, having a bouncy castle, having your face painted, so, or sharing experiences, so on and so forth. And I would imagine this, that most people arrive at such a church, not really sure what to expect, and leave feeling somewhat uh, disillusioned, maybe short-changed. Well, our purpose, by the grace of God, and I pray that the Lord will bless today's service, is to faithfully, methodically, and correctly read through the entire book of Exodus. Not an easy book to read, not an easy book to exegete. But like I say, by the grace of God, and I want him to bless today's broadcasts, and I would ask him to bless the rest of this study, we were able to look at Pharaoh and Moses. And I'm going to say this, that I would imagine that due to the pitch black, the absolute uh, period of darkness, they say that the lights went out. I want to suggest this, that Ra, the Egyptian sun god, must have been humiliated. Of course, Ra doesn't exist, but in the minds of the Egyptians, going back to the time of Moses, he certainly did. And it must have been humiliating for those that followed Ra to be surrounded in absolute darkness. And I mean real darkness, whereas the Jews were in light, enjoying the light, enjoying the scenery, if you will. I guess the equivalent to this account would have to be when Elijah came up against the Baalites from 1 Kings. And when Elijah came up against the Baalites, like 450 of them, there was a showdown. And Elijah said this, he said, whichever one is the real God, let him burn up the sacrifice, the burnt offering. And you got 450 Baalites dressing like Catholic priests, cutting themselves, screaming and shouting, calling on the name of Baal which of course is the rain god. And if you think of the Red Indians or Native Americans, as they are now called, doing their rain dance, you see which god they have worshipped for many a century. And Elijah, the true servant of Jehovah, is calling out the Baalites. And this class goes on for a period of time. And eventually, Jehovah steps in and accepts the sacrifice, whereas Baal was completely silent. So you think of Elijah, you think of Baal, you think of Moses, you think of Pharaoh. You think of Ra, the sun god, which, like I say, was completely humiliated by Jehovah. Chapter 11, chapter 11. And the Lord said unto Moses, Yet will I bring one plague more upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterwards he will let you go hence. When he shall let you go, he shall surely thrust you out hence altogether. He just wants to see the back of you. And yet he will pursue the Israelites with his merry men. And the Lord will take Pharaoh and his merry men and drown them. That's also picked up from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And the Lord Jehovah said unto Moses in an audible voice. And this is oral tradition which is later going to be written down. Yet will I bring one plague more upon Pharaoh. The Lord is very much in the driving seat. And upon Egypt, man and country, afterwards he will let you go hence. When he shall let you go, he shall surely thrust you out hence altogether. So now, we're at the point of no return. One final plague. 
is going to be sent by the Lord, a one-off strategic strike. And this has been going on for several chapters. And like I say, over the last several weeks, it was possible for Pharaoh and his lieutenants and cohorts to have repented. The word of God says how almighty God takes no pleasure in the death of the, of the death of the wicked, how he's not willing that any should perish, but come to repentance. Look at verse 2. Speak now in the ears of the people, and let every man borrow of his neighbour, and every woman of her neighbour, jewels of silver and jewels of gold. Borrow of their neighbour. The term borrow means to ask. You could suggest this. You could say, if you don't ask, you don't get. People say this. They say, did you ask for a pay rise? If you don't ask, you don't get. But in the context, this is very much in reference to backdated wages. Because, of course, for over 400 years, the Jews have been in slavery to the Egyptians. And I mean real slavery. Don't think about, or don't waste your time looking around the world to the times or the days of empire. I mean real slavery, where people were just crushed and forced to worship pagan gods. Of course, when Daniel and his friends came along, they would refuse to bend the knee. And as a result... Some of Daniel's friends were severely punished. In fact, even Daniel would find himself in the lion's den. And of course, the Lord was able to preserve him. Speak now in the ears of the people. Progressive revelation. And let every man borrow of his neighbor. Like get a loan. Like a free interest loan. Every man borrow of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor. Jewels of silver and jewels of gold. Gold and silver. When a currency crashes, you go to the gold. Or if the gold decreases, you go to the silver. And it's been said that with this uh, very uh, generous gift, shall we say, from the Egyptians to the Israelites, they were able to use such silver and gold for the construction of the temple. Which opens up the question, is there such a thing as bad money? Was it wrong for William Booth to take money from Rockefeller? Or was it Rothschild? Rothschild? Was it wrong? Would it be wrong to take money from George Soros? Is there such a thing as bad money? People say it's blood money. People say you can keep your money. But here the Jews are taking the goods, the, uh, the loot, the booty from the Egyptians. And on top of that, they are doing so because the Lord has commanded them to do so. And this opens up a Pandora's box. Is there such a thing as blood money? Is there such a thing as bad money? Three. And the Lord gave the people favour in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. So the Lord opens the hearts of the Egyptians in order for them to give their gold, their silver, to the Israelites. Because again, it's like uh, backdated wages. But on top of that, you've got Moses also being referred to as being very great in the land of Egypt and in the sight of Pharaoh's servants. And some have suggested that Joshua wrote this piece of scripture. It is true that at the end of the Torah, like the last few parts of Deuteronomy and possibly Numbers, Moses is spoken of in a third person. And it's been said by others that Joshua probably wrote uh, those references in. But Keep this in mind, if you will, that Jesus spoke about himself in the third person. And also Paul spoke about himself in the third person. Paul wrote his epistles, although Jesus Christ didn't write anything. When he spoke about himself and the apostles heard what he said, they wrote it down in the Gospels. There's no reason to doubt 
that when Jesus spoke about himself in the third person, he wasn't speaking about someone else. For today, I can think of two world leaders that regularly speak about themselves in the third person. The Queen does it and has done for many years. And also President Trump. Moreover, the man Moses was very great, not just great, but was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. It's almost paradoxical. Contrast that to John the Baptist, who would lose his head. Contrast that to the Apostle Paul, who would lose his head. Contrast that to James from the book of Acts, who would lose his head. Contrast that to James, the Lord's half-brother, who would also find himself being martyred. Again, you've got to think about these verses very carefully. Moses has been reared in Pharaoh's palace. We spent considerable time looking at Moses, his parents, and his adopted mother, if you will, and her relationship to the second Pharaoh. There are three found in Exodus. But he was respected. He was highly thought of. And there would have been people probably in the courts of Pharaoh's household thinking that perhaps one day Moses would have been the Pharaoh. I remember some years ago, reading about Luther, and I think it was Pope Paul III, and he said this, he said, we had hoped, referring to the Vatican, referring to the Catholic Church, we had hoped that one day Luther would be one of our own, like a Pope. And there are people in Rome who had high hopes for Martin Luther. Of course, from Martin's standpoint, that would have been abhorrence and abomination. But that's how people perceived, or certain people perceived Luther before he started to kick against the Vatican, kick against Rome. Same sort of thing here. But look at verse 4. And Moses said, Thus saith the Lord, About midnight will I go out into the midst of Egypt, and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh that sitteth upon the throne, even unto the firstborn of the maidservant that is behind the meal, and all the firstborn of beasts. So, midnight... The term midnight, keep your hand there and go to Acts chapter 16. The word midnight, the term midnight appears 13 times in your Bible. Of course, you know that 13 is a uh, negative number if you study uh, the occult. And over in Acts chapter 16, you've got an additional meaning to the number 13 or the description midnight uh, from Exodus 11. It is in reference to death, okay? Death. But from Acts 16, Acts chapter 16, from verse 25, it is in reference to life. And at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God, and the prisoners heard them. So if you are saved and you find yourself in prison, like a political prisoner, this is how you want to be found. This is how you want to offer yourself. Singing, And praising the Lord and doing so in a way that people all around you can hear. And the keeper of the prison, awakening out of his sleep, seeing the prison doors open, drew out his sword and would have killed himself, supposing that the prisoners had been fled. But Paul cried with a loud voice, saying, Do thyself no harm, for we are all here. Then he called for light and sprang in and came trembling and fell down before Paul and Silas and brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved in thy house. And they spake unto him the word of the Lord, and all that were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night, and washed their stripes, and was baptized, he and all his straight way. And when he had brought them into his house, he set meat before them, and rejoiced. 
believing in God with all, with all his house. Go back to Exodus chapter 11. So, from the 11th chapter of Exodus, when the term midnight is cited, it is in reference to death. For the New Testament, like Acts chapter 16, it is in reference to life. Matthew and Mark speak about the Lord's return. And he says it could be at midnight, it could be three o'clock in the morning, it could be at dawn. So if you want to prepare yourself a Bible study, just look up the term midnight. And like I say, it will appear 13 times in your Bible. But here, verses 4 and 5, it says, About midnight will I go out. This is God speaking. And he will go out as the destroyer. And we'll discuss that more later. And the destroyer is, of course, the angel of the Lord. About midnight will I go out into the midst of Egypt. And all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. Now, firstborn, again, if you want to do yourself a Bible study sometime or prepare yourself your own Bible study, look up the word firstborn. The term firstborn in the Old Testament can refer to Israel as a nation. It can refer to uh, David. Uh, well, David is referred to as the firstborn, and for the New Testament, Jesus Christ is also referred to as the firstborn. Not in a chronological sense, but in the sense of preeminence. But for Pharaoh's child, it would be in reference to chronological order and also preeminence, because of course Pharaoh's firstborn son was his heir. All the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die from the firstborn of Pharaoh that sitteth upon his throne almost reminiscent to the Antichrist and his throne, even unto the firstborn of the maidservant that is behind the mill, and all the firstborn of beasts. So the Lord is going to pick himself three groups of people. He's going to, first of all, attack the firstborn, the maidservants, and also the beasts. So there can be no doubt as to who is calling the shots. Look at verse 6. And there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there was none like it, nor shall be like it any more. This will be a one-off strategic strike. Creation was a one-off event. The crucifixion was a one-off event. You were born again once. You got baptized once. You came to the Lord once. But here, verse 6, is in reference to death. And of course, this point in the Lord's on the Lord's timetable, in the Lord's timetable, there's no reverse gear. Once he decides to do something, that's exactly what he is going to do. Seven, but against any of the children of Israel shall not a dog move his tongue, against man or beast, that ye may know how that the Lord doth put a difference between the Egyptians and Israel. So you're either saved or unsaved. Up until this point in time, the Lord was only interested in Israel. Today, he's only interested in the church. You may be very religious. You may keep the Sabbath. You may tithe. You may go to the synagogue. You may wear the skull cap. You may pray to God in Hebrew. But that's of no interest to him. Unless you are born again, unless you have the Messiah, unless you have been given imputation, you're lost. And this is something which a lot of Christians don't like to say. I get sick and tired of hearing people like John Hagee and David Jeremiah, and even David Hocking to some extent, bending over backwards to appease the Jews, and saying how wonderful they are, and how this and how that, and never criticise them. But not just that, don't witness to them. 
and Haggy's probably the worst, he says that there was a two-tier system or a dual gospel. And he says this, he says the Jews will be saved their way and the Christians will be saved another way. That is a lie. The Lord Jesus Christ said that unless you believe I am, you will die in your sins. And these cowardly Christians, evangelicals, are very close to Israel. I would suggest probably too close to Israel. They don't speak out against Israel. They don't speak out against the Jews. They don't call on the Jews to repent. And many of these Jewish men and women may be pro-life, may be socially conservative, but they are resurrection deniers. They deny the resurrection. They are lost. And if you get too close to Jews or Muslims or even Catholics, you lose your testimony. You become somewhat of a joke. And I've watched these guys over the years, and Haggy, like I say, is probably the worst, lying through his teeth. He's so keen to cozy up to the Jews that he doesn't preach the gospel to them. And I've heard what he says. I've heard David Jeremiah. I've heard David Hocking almost tiptoeing around them. Nothing wrong with being pro-Israel. Nothing, nothing wrong with supporting Israel's right to the land, and we certainly do. But don't do that in spite of the gospel. So you're either for the Lord or you are against. If you are a Jew and you keep the Sabbath and you tithe, and you don't do this, and you don't do that, and you go to the synagogue, you're still lost. You're still lost. Religion won't save anybody. It's about a relationship. It's about coming to the Messiah. It's about receiving his total forgiveness. And I don't want to think about what's going to happen to these cowardly evangelical Christians who are going to face the Lord at the judgment and have to somehow explain themselves to him. I'm not talking about the Kabbalah. I'm not talking about the Talmud. I'm not talking about witchcraft. I'm not talking about... Same-sex marriage in Israel. I'm not talking about that stuff. Every country has capitulated around the world. Every country has surrendered to that agenda. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about saved men, or professionally saved men, who refuse to witness to the Jews and refuse to separate from the Jews. And they cozy up with them in ways that Paul would never do, in ways that Peter would never do, in ways that Jesus Christ would certainly never do. And they do so because they don't want to offend them. Well, I'll offend them. I don't care. Listen, if you are a Jewish man or woman, and like I say, conservative, you're still lost. You are lost, and you're going to burn. You're going to burn with your Muslim friends. You're going to burn with your Catholic friends. And you say, that's too hard, James. Well, if I don't tell you, who is going to tell you? Do you think J David Jeremiah is going to say that? Do you think D uh, John Haggy is going to say that? But against any of the children of Israel, Old Covenant, shall not a dog move his tongue, verse 7, against man or beast. In other words, they are preserved. They are greatly beloved because this is their covenant. This is their time. But for today, the church is greatly beloved. And the church has been saved, sanctified and spared. Colon. That ye may know how that the Lord doth put a difference between the Egyptians and Israel. He will delineate whoever he wants, wherever he wants. He sees a difference between the saved and the unsaved. The sheep and the goats. Almighty God is incredibly black and white. And I've watched many press conferences over the years. And I've watched far too many movies over the years. And when they approach religion, they will normally have the family around the dinner table. And they bow their heads and they say, thank you, Father, for this food. Amen. That's a worthless prayer. They don't say, thank you, Lord, or we come to you, Lord, in the name of Jesus Christ. Please bless this meal in the name of Jesus Christ. They won't say that. It's an ecumenical prayer. They don't want to offend anybody. And I've seen these mainly American evangelicals. We haven't got any in this country. Britain is a lost country. Britain is a dead country, quite honestly. We are a finished country. But 
when you look over to America, there are some Christian men and women over there, decent people who are in positions of authority. And every so often, every so often, they will pray in the name of Jesus Christ and praise the Lord for that. But most won't, because they know that Jesus Christ is controversial. And like I said before, over the years, when you put Jesus Christ into the equation, it causes all sorts of problems. So what do you do? You get rid of Jesus, don't you? Get rid of Jesus and the Jews are pleased. Get rid of Jesus and the Muslims are pleased. Get rid of Jesus and the Catholics are pleased. Put a difference, a delineation between the Egyptians and Israel, between the church and the world. Paul says over in 1 Corinthians that there's Jew, Gentile and the church. Three groups of people. He later on says over in Galatians chapter 3 how there's neither Jew nor Gentile. All are one in Christ Jesus, side abbreviation, meaning that once you're born again, strictly speaking, you are no longer a Jew nor a Gentile. Look at verse 8, please. And all these thy servants shall come down unto me and bow down themselves unto me, saying, Get thee out, and all the people that follow me. And after that I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in a great anger. Jesse Lee Peterson says this. He says, If you have anger... You are not a child of God. He says, if you have anger, you are a child of the devil. Let's see if that's true. Go to Mark chapter 3. Keep your hand there. Paul would tell you to be ye angry and sin not. Be ye, meaning all of you, angry and sin not. The word of God says how God is angry with the wicked every day. Moses was a saved man. Far from perfect, but he was saved. And here it says he went out with great anger. Not just anger, but great anger. And for Mark uh, chapter 3, Mark uh, chapter 3, look at verse 5. And when he, being Jesus Christ, had looked round about on them with anger. Did you get that? And when he had looked round about on them with anger, being grieved for the hardness of their hearts, he saith unto the man, stretch forth thine hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored whole as the other. In reference to verse 1, 2, 3, and 4. Jesus Christ would show anger. Okay, you want some more verses? Go over to, uh, let's see now, go over to John chapter 11. So Jesse may be socially conservative, like a lot of these people I've spoken about this morning. But when it comes to his theology, it stinks, quite honestly. When it comes to the word of God, it stinks. John chapter 11, John chapter 11, look at 35. Jesus wept. And he says this, Jesse says this, that if you show emotions, if you are a man, and you show any kind of of emotional state, you are a beta male. And you hear Jesus Christ weeps. Uh, Mark 3, it says he is angry. And I'll give you one more. Go to, uh, let's see now, go over to... uh, Luke chapter 10. You've got to watch these guys. You've got to be very careful with these sort of preachers. Jesse Lee Peterson is a reverend. He is an ordained minister. He's not just some guy in a, in a radio studio. He's got quite a following. And I like a lot of what Jesse says. Don't get me wrong. I like a lot of his conservative commentary. Uh, he says he is socially conservative. He says he's morally conservative. And he probably is. But when he comes out with statements like, if you have anger... Like any kind of anger, you are of your father the devil. He's saying you're un- he's saying you're lost. He's saying you are unsaved. Uh, what does it say? Luke chapter ten. Luke uh, chapter ten. Look at verse twenty-one, please. In that hour, Jesus rejoiced in spirit and said, "I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent, 
and has revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. Jesus wept. Jesus rejoiced. Jesus was greatly angered. God is angry the wicked every day. God hates all workers of iniquity. Go back to Exodus chapter 11, please. So, let me say this. If you're not a Bible reader, you don't know much about God, do you, really? I mean, you can say what you want to say. There was a street preacher that Patrick watched a few nights ago, and he was preaching somewhere in America, and he had an open mic, and a guy walked over to him, and he said this. He said, I struggle with depression. And he said to the guy, well, you're not saved. Because if you're saved, you don't struggle with depression. And I thought, what a stupid, irresponsible, moronic statement to make. The Apostle Paul was an emotional man. Elijah was an emotional man. After the Baal incidents, when he killed 450 of those Baal priests, word gets back to Jezebel, and she says, I want Elijah tracked down and killed. And he turns around and says, I'll take on Jezebel. I'll take on Ahab. I'll take on her entire army because the Lord of hosts is with me. That's not what he says. He runs for the hills. He's depressed, almost suicidal. Because, uh, because after every great achievement, there's a great fall. And Elijah was an emotional man. Jesus Christ was an emotional man. He would, he would uh, weep over Jerusalem. The Apostle Paul was also an emotional man. And it tells you from the book of Acts how he was crying for three days. Warning the elders in Ephesus that enemies would come from inside of the church, not outside of the church. So please understand why I took you to those verses. Because Moses had great anger, a righteous anger. Not an unrighteous anger, but a righteous anger. Going back to what Paul would say to be ye angry and sin not. Nine. And the Lord said unto Moses... Pharaoh shall not hearken unto you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Churches say this. They say, can you do signs and wonders? They say, can you do miracles? They say, are you able to set people free of the devil? They say, uh, can you or do you follow in the footsteps of the apostles? Keep your hand there and go to Revelation chapter 13. So you've got Moses and Aaron doing miracles. You've got Jesus and John doing miracles. You've got Peter and Paul doing miracles. You've got James and John doing miracles. Revelation 13, Revelation 13, look at 13. And he doeth great wonders concerning the false prophet, so that he maketh fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. And deceiveth them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast. Saying to them that dwell on the earth, that they should make an image of the beast, which had the wound by a sword, and did live. False prophet is an evil counterfeit to Elijah. If Elijah is one of the two witnesses, he will be calling fire down from heaven. And he would do that with the Baalites, going back to First Kings. And if he is one of the two witnesses found in Revelation, then it makes sense that the false prophet from the religious sphere is going to counterfeit what Elijah would be doing before uh, the two witnesses are, of course, executed and returned to heaven. So when it comes to miracles, when it comes to signs and wonders, don't be deceived by that stuff. I've seen clips on YouTube over the past week which have just floored me. 
I've seen stuff online. I mean, you talk about miracles. You talk about stuff which you can't really explain. And I've watched these people doing stuff which I don't really understand. I saw a clip filmed somewhere in India about two or three weeks ago. It looks real to me. And there's some altercation going on. And someone gets their phone out and they're filming it from a bus or a coach. And you got a group of people arguing, a couple of women arguing with a couple of guys. And these women all of a sudden are raising their hands up and just lifting people off the ground, like 20 feet. I can't see any strings. I can't see any ropes. I mean, it could be a studio set. I don't know. But I think I'm pretty savvy. And I'm watching that stuff, trying to work out what's going on. And these women are raising their hands up and down and people are being lifted off the ground and thrown around like nothing really. And of course, people are terrified, shouting and screaming, what's going on? Demonic, demonic. Going back to when the Lord Jesus Christ came the first time, he was healing people all the time because the devils were doing overtime because they knew that the Messiah was on the earth and people were possessed uh, and oppressed. And the Lord Jesus Christ was like running a full-time healing ministry and never once did he charge a penny. But here, 13, 13, you want to talk about miracles, signs and wonders? you got it right here. False prophets. And it talks about the image of the beast being the Antichrist. And verse 15, and he had power to give life unto the image of the beast. And he had power to give life unto the image of the beast. That the image of the beast should both speak and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. Go back to Exodus. You think miracles are going to get people saved? The Lord Jesus Christ did more miracles than anybody else. He couldn't get Pilate saved. He couldn't get Herod saved. He couldn't get Caiaphas saved. He couldn't get Ananias saved. He couldn't get the entire Sanhedrin saved. Apart from, of course, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. So Pharaoh has sat back and he's watched Moses come and go. He's seen the miracles. He's seen several plagues. And in spite of all that... In spite of all that, it's made no difference. Verse 10, and I'll close. And Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh. And the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, so that he would not let the children of Israel go out of his land. It's fair to say that Herod's heart was dead. It's fair to say that Pilate's heart was dead. It's fair to say that the hearts of the Jewish leaders, excluding, of course, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, were dead. So when people say, but you need to do more miracles, you need to cast out spirits, you need to do this, you need to do that, that makes no difference. When the false prophet arrives, he will be a counterfeit of Elijah, he will call fire down from heaven, and people will see it, and they'll be falling over themselves. And yet, in spite of that, it's not from God, it's from the devil. Going back to Second Thessalonians, where the word of God says how the Lord is going to send out strong delusion on those that refuse to believe the truth and have pleasure in the lie, pleasure in unrighteousness. So 10 verses from Exodus chapter 11. This has been broadcast number 25. This has been week number 25. And like I say, you've seen the term death found here being in reference to uh, midnight being in reference to death. From the New Testament, midnight is in reference to life. Also, midnight is in reference to the second advent. The firstborn could be in reference to Israel, David, and also Jesus Christ. But Jesus Christ, when he is referred to as the firstborn of God, is not in reference to a chronological event. It is in reference to a preeminent 
event. Jesus Christ was begotten of God. Adam was created. But for Pharaoh, his son was his firstborn. His son was his heir in waiting, a bit like Solomon would be David's. Uh, You've also got three groups of firstborn singled out for destruction. And I'm going to suggest that the three groups are the unlucky three, if you will. God is angry. God is angry with the wicked every day. Moses was a man of God. Moses was displaying the anger, the righteous anger of the Lord. God is angry with the wicked every day. God hates all workers of iniquity. Paul would tell you to be angry and sin not. And I've given you three verses from the New Testament which showed you how Christ was an emotional man. He would weep, he would be angry, and he'd also rejoice. In fact, that term from Luke 10 is the only time where it says Jesus rejoiced. It's the only time in the four Gospels. Moses and Aaron would do all these wonders before Pharaoh. Jesus and John would do all their wonders before Herod, Pilate, and the Jewish elite, but all to no avail. And Revelation 13, concerning the false prophet, is going to build on that. And he would do miracles like you've never seen before. He'll give life to the image of the beast. That's hard to really imagine. And they will see this beast, this image, come to life. And they're going to fall over themselves to worship this image. And, of course, that is being done because the Lord is angry with them. Moses was very great. Again, Jesus and Paul speak of themselves in the third person. So there's no reason to think that Moses didn't write this chapter. But like I say, later on when he dies and Joshua succeeds him, Joshua probably does write bits at the end of Deuteronomy just to build on uh, what was going on. The Jews are told to borrow uh, from the Egyptians, and that term borrow in Hebrew means to ask. Ask and you shall receive. Knock and it shall be given unto you. And finally, let me say this, that Israel and the church, if you will, are saved. So for the Old Testament, Israel is redeemed. For today, the church is redeemed. And the church, like Israel, were redeemed from the world, the flesh and the devil. Yet both would and continue to return to this unholy trinity. The Lord uh, redeems Israel. They come out of Egypt. And later on, uh, especially from the book of Jeremiah, they start to serve Egypt again. They go back into the world, which if you want, pictures the saved person going back into the world, backsliding. But the Lord has redeemed Israel, Old Testament. The Lord has redeemed the church, New Testament. For today, the people of God are the church, the body of Christ. That may not be very popular to say. That may be not politically correct. That may be considered anti-Semitic. I don't care. The Bible says that. The Bible says that if you have the Son, you have life. And if you don't have the Son of God, you don't have life. You can have people worshipping God or their God anywhere they want, but outside of the Lamb of God, outside of the the Messiah, outside of Jesus Christ, it's all in vain. This is the tragedy of it. You've got millions of Muslims around the world, very religious. You've got maybe a few, uh, maybe two or three million Jews around the world, not that many, of course, uh, that are very religious. Most Jews are not religious, but those that are religious are worshipping Jehovah in an obsolete way. They're going back to an old covenant. They're trying to resurrect an old covenant. They're trying to do religion. When the Lord said, it's over, it's finished. When you rejected my son, you rejected the new covenant. When you rejected myself, being God the Father from 1 Samuel 8, you rejected me. And when you rejected God the Holy Ghost from Acts chapter 7, you rejected me. And this is the truth of the matter. The Jews as a people have rejected God. Old Testament, New Testament, and the the, uh, inter-testimonial period. Acts chapter 7. So therefore, if you are a religious Jew, turn to Jesus. 
If you are a religious Muslim, turn to Jesus. If you are a religious Catholic, turn to Jesus. That's all there is to it. It's not rocket science. Just turn to Jesus and he'll save the Jews. He'll save the Muslims. He'll save the Catholics. He'll save anyone, anywhere, at any time. 